Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. In today's episode, I have a chat to Dr. Alex Rees-Taylor, who's a sociologist from Goldsmiths University in London. Alex's work focuses on the multi-sensory experience of urban space, and he's written a number of papers and articles exploring the multicultural food scene of London, particularly East London, and he spoke about the importance smell plays in understanding a place. Now, I've been wanting to do an episode on smell for a while. Personally, I think it's one of those underrated senses we take for granted quite a lot of the time, when in fact, I think smell has huge correlations to our memories and we associate certain smells with certain people or places. And I think it can also be a means of expressing our identity to some extent. You know, for example, if you choose a particular perfume or aftershave as you want to smell a certain way. And added to that, I think it can indicate the kind of work we do and leading from that possibly our social status. So before we get into today's episode, I'll give you the rundown of some of the things we discuss. Firstly, we will look at how Alex got interested in researching smells and how we can use the senses to study society in a sociological context. We then look at why scent is so important when trying to understand the world around us, as well as the evolution of London's smellscape and some of the aromas that have been lost in the past and also in more recent years. We then get into the use of scent within a heritage context from projects aiming to preserve smells and different heritage sites, using them to make visitors' experiences more immersive. Finally, we touch on where Alex's research is headed, and we talk about some of our favourite smells in the city and landscape in general. So we'll crack on with today's episode now, and I really hope you enjoy it. To start things off, it'd be great if you could just tell the listeners a bit about you and your work and what actually got you interested in researching smells. Um, well, there's a whole, there are about five different stories I could tell, I guess, as to how I became interested in researching smells. And I'm not really sure which one uh, is is the real story, if any of them at all. Um, I guess it's a kind of plat of them. So the starting point, I guess, is that I grew up in the catering industry. Um, my dad was a um, was a chef um, and, and then went into food packing. Um, uh, and also um, when I was young, my parents owned a deli. And, you know, as a middle class white kid in middle England, there's not much to construct your identity around. So I guess <laughs> I made my mine around food um, you know, and being a kind of a little bit of a foodie. Mm. And, and, you know, and I and I worked in hotels and restaurants um, um, all the way through, you know, probably from younger than I should have done. Um, and, 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 and up until I was about 21. And so, you know, food and smells and tastes have always been like a kind of big part of my life. But then I kind of moved away from that and you know my my undergraduate degree was in sociology um and i became particularly interested in questions of social order and social stratification and after my degree i moved into the world of urban regeneration um and uh, urban design and this is where the kind of interest started coming together because i remember one assignment i was sent on was to a particular um street market in east london and we were working with the local council there, um, but also Transport for London. 
And people were talking about this street market as a place to be redeveloped, to be uh, redesigned, to be made more legible. Um, and this idea of legible really referred to something that kind of visibly made sense to the to the entire city that kind of fitted in more with a kind of uh, mainstream aesthetic, I guess. And it really struck me that the ways in which people were talking about this street market completely ignored the kind of the sensory attachments that people had to this place. Yeah, it wasn't a visually pretty place. It was, you know, visually utterly chaotic, but it was full of incredible ingredients and smells and flavors. And it really struck me that these aspects of sensory experience weren't being thought about in the processes of urban change and uh, architecture and design. So, you know, kind of bringing these interests together, um, I thought, I'd, you know, can leave the urban regeneration world for a bit and go and do a PhD looking at the ways in which the kind of non-visual aspects of the city um, feed into processes of urban change. Yeah, it's funny that you kind of did that under the sociology route because I did that A-level and you, I don't know, that smells you'd never think, I, I mean, it makes sense as a sociology thing, but it never really came up much as a topic. It was more like the surveys and the studies and the that sort of element of it. So how did you kind of get to combine sociology and sense? Uh, yeah, uh, it's, an, it's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so first and foremost, I am really a sociologist and I still have that interest in social order, social stratification, cultural groupings. Um, and, you know, traditionally, sociology has tried to make sense of this through asking people questions or through gathering kind of abstract data about people. But the thing is, the, the, the processes and the things that sociologists are interested in, historical processes, economic forces, the formation of cultural groups, whether that's around ethnicity or class, they all work by way of the interaction between the world around us and our bodies, mm. right? Mm. Culture is embodied, class is embodied, economic forces work through the body, hunger, thirst. Um, so, you know, th th there's a whole kind of subsection of sociology really uh, it's been going for around 30 40 years it's really started to take the body a bit more seriously but even within that you know the sense of smell was hugely neglected but then if you think about how important the sense of smell might be to kind of um, maintaining boundaries between um, um, class groups uh, social class or the ways in which uh, um, a smell you know plays a role in kind of uh, particular cultural milieu or in festivals or um, um, in, 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 you know, particular kind of ethnic celebrations, you know, smells incredibly important there, not least because we can't close our nostrils. And it's, you know, the one of the key ways which the body is kind of always open to the world. So it struck me, you know, here's something that actually seems to be incredibly important, that there's a, a real kind of deficit of research on her at the moment. Yeah. So that's that's how sociology and the senses kind of a fit for me this social structures and social processes work through our body and smell is one of the ways in which they do that yeah massively smell is, I feel personally like that's it's really underrated because you take smell for granted until you say catch a cold and then you're eating your dinner and it tastes of nothing you know you don't appreciate how much smell except our surroundings makes us it reminds us of memories it Mm. with food you know like you were talking about it makes up so much of the meal 
you always think of the, the visual aspects, the sounds and smell is just really taken for granted. So why is it so important with sense, you know, when it comes to understanding these cityscapes and, and the history mm. of them, how, how does that play? Well, I guess I'll just rewind a bit there to your point about, um, uh, you know, having a cold, um, um, in part through kind of doing a sociology of smell, kind of raising the profile of smell and its sociological significance. I've come into contact with a couple, uh, one smell loss charity in particular, um, a group called Fifth Sense, um, and they kind of deal with anosmia. Uh, and you know, one, one of the things they're really concerned to do is just to say, look, smell's really important. When we lose our sense of smell, as many people are doing now through COVID, um, you know, it affects people's relationships with their with, with their closest partners. It re- affects the ways in which people kind of feel confident or not in space. People worried about the way they smell, worried about about the way other people smell. Um, so you know it, the, the kind of psychosocial aspects of smell are particularly um, important. I guess this kind of translates through to the city in that, um, you know, I guess one of the kind of crucial things is is is, is place attachment and smell. So um, the the neighbourhoods we grow up in, um, you know, we often become again unwittingly because our nostrils are always open um very kind of acclimatized and familiar uh with the smells around it and you know we're all kind of well back in the days when people used to go on holiday relatively familiar with the idea of coming back from a holiday and arriving back in your neighborhood or even into your house and smelling it all anew again and you suddenly feel it's through the smell of the neighborhood and the smell of home that you feel at home again it's that kind of sense of security that you get from it. Mm. At the same time, you know, smell is also critical to um, sensing danger as well. And when I say danger, I mean not kind of literal danger, I guess kind of symbolic or culturally constructed forms of danger. So, you know, the smell of another um, social group uh, that you're not familiar with or the smell of, uh, you know, a, um, a particular place that you're trying to distinguish yourself from. Um, smells kind of critical to the boundaries we draw around ourselves uh, vis-a-vis other people and places as well. So smells are really kind of big part of the, the kind of machinery through which the social order of the city um, is produced. It kind of makes me think of a historical example of, you know, the great stink with the sewers and when people thought that the smell was causing cholera and actually it was through the water. So, it, it you know, in the past it had such an impact on people. Like it played such a role. I mean, when we didn't know much about things, we probably relied quite heavily on our sense of smell to, like you were saying, it was kind of with, with danger mm. or mm. something bad. And eventually, you know, we we, we realised what it actually was that was causing it. But that the smell was a yeah, great help yeah. in that. I mean, the, 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 yeah, the Great Stinks a really interesting example, actually, um, because as, as you say, you know, we thought that that was a danger, that the smell was actually, you know, what was threatening us, and it wasn't the smell; it was the, you know, it was the the pathogens that existed in the water. Um, but that whole process. Of, of London is characterized by a divide going east to west, right? You know, the the the, the poor industry um, was always in the east, and that was because the prevailing winds blow across London from west to east. So all of the stench industries from the very moment that the Romans settled from that the Romans settled London, the tanneries, 
the cemeteries even uh the the kind of production of dyes and kind of noxious smelly things were all located in the east of the city now some of those things were genuine toxins and you know the, the smell indexed a particular kind of threat to life some of the smells weren't literally uh you know toxic themselves but were associated with things that were perhaps kind of symbolically dirty or culturally dirty that's why you kind of get this mix of kind of real dangerous kind of pathogens and toxins and the kind of symbolically smelly or stinky things all muddled together in that particular part of the city so you know the smells played a very important part in just kind of shaping uh, uh the historical demography of a city like London. Mm. Are there any examples of uh, smells that might no longer exist in London? Obviously the sewage is one of them, but you know, maybe more like a general smells of you know yeah. like markets or Yeah, I think it's been a, a kind of triad I guess of different uh changes to the aroma of the city or let's say kind of two key forces are, are, are changing the, the the aromatic landscape of the city and i guess the first one is the the death of industry in uh western european um, um cities or at least the kind of migration of industry out to the edges of the city and overseas so somewhere like london Really, not that long ago. I mean, you know, you can talk to people that li lived in London through the 60s and the 70s, and there was still the smell of uh, vinegar from a vinegar factory. There was still the smell of biscuits from the biscuit factories. On some days, you can still actually smell, uh, if, if the wind's blowing in the right direction, there's a Tate and Lyle sh uh, sugar uh, production plant out on the Thames. You still get that slight, slight uh, kind of whiff of um, uh, kind of mass food processing, but for the main part, those smells have all gone. Mm. Um, the east end of London no longer has uh, plastics factories. It no longer has, uh, uh, um, you know, the, the kind of heavy industry that it used to have. Other areas don't. You know, there's no matchbox factories. There's no sulphur in the air anymore. So a lot of those kind of old industrial smells have gone. And a kind of more recent um, set of changes, I think. I mean. One of the things that characterizes a world city like London, you know, that has kind of such long, deep and very problematic connections to kind of empire and the colonies is that, it, you know, it's the aromatic landscape of London has historically been um, incredibly diverse. Um, and, you know, you've had kind of particular kind of migrant groups moving to the city, uh, particularly like to the East End, where you had the the Jewish migrants in the 19th and early 20th century, and then uh, Bengali Saletis uh, from the 60s and 70s onwards. And each of those groups kind of deposited something of their own kind of sensory milieu, their sensory order um, in that space. What we're starting to see now is the kind of slight withering away or disappearance of those kind of uh, the landscapes that indexed that post-colonial history the smells that index that and actually their replacement with a kind of more homogenized uh kind of globalized food court of kind of pulled pork and steak that's actually so true you, you don't think that but actually everywhere you go they all want to have that thing that's the same vibe the coffee the pulled pork the 
sourdough, the re- real ale. Yeah, the sourdough pieces, all of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, you oh, know, and, and, and it all appears really, and it is diverse. There's a, you know, there's a sensory diversity to that new kind of sensory landscape, but it, it is globally uh, kind of ubiquitous. It's the sensory order or the sensory milieu of kind of a transnational elite group that kind of is, is actually overriding, um, um, wiping out some of the kind of, the kind of older organic kind of uh, uh, sensory landscapes um, that emerged through the 20th century city. I did an episode about the the sounds of London with Ian Rawls. I don't know if you've heard mm-hmm. of his project, but he was actually talking about that, but in a in a different regard. But the sounds, like the sounds of you know the markets. There's not the cries for people's individual goods anymore because it is all just generic or none at all. You know the uniqueness of an area is getting lost in sound and obviously smell too. Uh, and you know, I guess that's one of the things about smell. Like you know, an area's ambiance, the aromatic kind of landscape, as it would have built up over you know decades, is going to actually have quite a kind of molecular specificity. It is really, really unique and very hard to reproduce and to capture. And you know, once it's gone, it's gone. Mm. So yeah, you know, these 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 things are uh, very ephemeral, and and they are being lost. I guess, I mean, and, and, and the other thing I just wanted to kind of turn to a little bit, I guess, is just, the, you know, the city as it's rapidly changing underneath our noses at the moment um, uh, through kind of uh, COVID-19 and pandemics and lockdowns. You know, the activity of the city, well, first of all, lots of people are losing their sense of smell. And I hope we're going to start to realize how important that is um, and that you know these people hopefully will will start to get the support that they need because it is going to have an impact um, on their lives at a kind of very personal level but yeah you know the, the, the landscape is changing rapidly you know kind of restaurants are closing down the kind of retail landscapes completely changing um, so even some of those kind of big it might be the case that some of those bigger kind of corporate retail landscapes where smells carefully controlled and the atmosphere is carefully controlled they don't now get built because of you know whatever crisis happens and 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 something new will emerge it's quite hard to see but there's definitely a change to the sensory atmosphere that's been um, brought about by uh lockdown uh, um in, in response to covid no, massively. And I was thinking about this before we spoke because I, I was thinking uh, what's changed even in my lifetime, which isn't that long, but, you know, like smells and, you know, when you go into pubs now, they used to reek of smoke, cigarettes, <laughs> like it's a huge smell that's gone from the landscape. People used to reek of fags and you go into pubs and it reeked of it everywhere. Like that is a smell you never get anymore. You never get that stale cigarette smell yeah. or you know just or, or kind of like even just sort of you know like a cafe with the greasy fry up because it's all like nice ones now which are all like yes. with the sourdough and the nice organic this so you you've lost those sort of really dirty smells well, so, of, they're not around so much that's an interest yeah i mean dirty i mean the, 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 because they're seen as kind of we'd, we'd refer to them as dirty now because to take the anthropological definition of dirt, it's matter out of place. You know, it's one thing in one place that just shouldn't be there. Mm. So now they're seen as dirty because, well, yeah, I guess, you know, the fry up because of the kind of uh, moral panic around obesity. Um, the smoking one's really interesting, I think, as well, because that's one of the ones I recognize. And, uh, you know, I re- really, really miss the smell of smoke. Um, I'm not a smoker, um, but you know, the smell of urinal cakes and flatulence in a pub 
would better be uh, kind of masked with, with with cigarette smoke than actually having to smell, uh, you know, disinfectant and 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 urine. It's funny you say that because I think some. I suppose I was a child when they were really smoky, so that's why I hated it. But I quite, I some pubs I think I quite like that smell. It's kind of that booze and carpet smell. I don't know. I don't. Like <laughs> yeah, you sometimes yeah. you start, you don't always get that stinky. I know what you mean about the nasty toilets, but it depends on. It's the pubs <laughs> which I go one to. You go into yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I go into so, old men pubs. Yeah, um, um, <laughs> but I mean. Again, so the loss of the smell of smoke, uh, um, uh, cigarette smoke. I mean, like the loss of the smell of kind of charcoals that you know people might have cooked on um, um, around Europe in particular. You know, because there's a new EU health and safety regulations about cooking materials, or the loss of the smell of kind of wood fires of you know people kind of burning uh, uh, wood, you know, logs and the smell of um, wood burning wood coming out of a chimney. They're all, you know, restricted, restricted and legislated around, you know, because they are toxic. They are, you know, these aren't symbolically dirty things. These are things that are, you know, literally um, uh, dangerous to the body. Um, but I still miss them, you know, um, uh, because, you know, for better or worse, you know, I grew up and amidst them and they remind me of um, happier, safer, secure times, even if they are toxic. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot with with smells, isn't it? It's 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 the fond memory, or it, as soon as you smell it, you flash back to a moment. And um, yeah, I guess yeah, like you say, for the cigarettes with you, it's a it's a nice nice feeling for you. Yeah, that that has a lot to do with my dad. Yeah, was <laughs> so, it? Was he a yeah. smoker then? Oh yeah, 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 very much so. Yeah, you know, to the point that it killed him. Oh god, <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. My parents were smokers as well. My dad was like a chain smoker, but I have the opposite because, you know, if I was sitting next to him on the couch, I'd be like, oh, trying to shield my <laughs> my face from breathing it in. So I kind of didn't like the smell of it, but I, I suppose it each yeah. to their own. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, um, and I and I didn't like it at the time. I hated it as well. But now, you know, it's, it's, it's I guess it's a, as you say, and, you know, and as Proust wrote a little book about, it only takes, you know, the, the slightest whiff of a smell to kind of conjure entire sensory memories replete with vision and sound and, you know, everything. Smell mm. is so deeply connected to episodic memory. It's been such a long time since I've honestly smelled that smell of stale smoke, a whole room of it, because just you can't get, I don't think you can get that anymore because people don't smoke in public or... or... I mean, I know there's the outdoor areas, but it's not the same smell because it's not sort of trapped. It blows away. No, you smell it more in countries that have um, a good Gini coefficient, which is the disparity between the mm. lowest income and the highest income. Because in those countries, they haven't been anywhere near as strict uh, on policing smoking. So countries like uh, Norway or Japan, for instance, um, I found it really striking that, you know, that smoking is still part of public culture, or at least it was uh, last time I visited. Um, so actually in quite well... Wow, I'm actually quite surprised yeah. to hear of those countries as exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, because they, they do well on so many other fronts that, you know, s smoking isn't as um, injurious to the, to the population as it is in other places. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. The new smell is... The vape pens that you smell like those really strong berry fragrances yes. wafting around the corner. And isn't, isn't that it? interesting as well? You know, there's that whole kind of um, reframing of, of 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 kind of nicotine consumption and the transformation of it, um, using 
childhood flavors right you know it's caramel it's banoffee pie it's it's mm, uh, vanilla yeah. or or berries or whatever you know again kind of tapping into that uh, um the, the the power i guess of childhood memory and or of, of kind of being a child and, the, and that appeal yeah it is really striking just how sweet and sickly so many of them are yeah, it's just like the complete contrast, isn't it, of the sort of... The old cigarettes were so adult when, when you were children, it, whereas this is, like you say, it smells like kids' smells, like sweets. And, and the kinds of people who smoke it don't look like people who would smoke real yeah. cigarettes either. Well, isn't that interesting? So, you know, maybe there's something there about an entire generation of people having been arrested in their youth by ongoing financial and uh, uh, political crisis around the world. Careers and adulthood hasn't opened up to everybody. So people are still going around dressed as kids, um, um, inhaling fruity flavoured uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe. It's a, it's a hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, um, we'll move on a bit now. There's been a few projects around regarding the preservation of smells and using scents to enhance visitors' experiences to heritage sites. And, mm. you know, do you think this is something that's going to become more widespread in the future? Because, I mean, it's to me, I mean, you might know more about this, but I feel like I've never seen anything like this. It just seems really quite new and something up, up and coming that people are starting to really take mm. notice of. Interesting. Um I mean, I can think of historical examples of it uh, that have been around for a good kind of 20, 30 years. So the the Jorvik Centre in York um, in northern England, uh, you know, tried to recreate the uh, aromas of the Viking world or the the Robin Hood Centre in uh, Nottingham um, tried to recreate, you know, the, the kind of mulchy, uh, uh, leafy ambiance of, uh, of Robin Hood and his merry men. Or um, the Museum of uh, Docklands in East London, again, did a whole kind of thing where they try and create the sounds and the smells of of, of, of the docks. Um, and, you know, I totally get what they're doing. They're trying to create an immersive experience and, you know, a, an experience that kind of really um, uh, plunges people into history. I'm not sure if it ever really works in quite the way that um, uh, people hope that it would. Um, and I think this is partly there's a distinction between kind of two aspects of smelling that I think it's really useful uh, 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 to, to kind of tease out a little bit. You know, first of all, you have the kind of raw sensoria, you know, the particular compounds, aromatic compounds. These are kind of materials that have within them the kind of potential to be smelled, right? Um, they exist out there in the world. But we only experience them as sensations when they those materials meet our body and they're filtered through a particular sensibility. So it's the sensibility, the ways in which our body has been habituated, it's been trained, and it learns to give meaning to particular um, aromas or, or compounds, you know, whether consciously or not. So what's missing, even if you're able to kind of recreate the sensoria, the kind of material atmosphere of um, uh, Viking York or, um, uh, you know, East London's docks. What we can't do is, you know, give people the sensibilities with which to understand it or make sense of it. So in, in many respects, it's just like, you know, giving people a load of uh, hieroglyphs or runes that they can't really decipher. You know, we say, oh, you know, that's pretty and that's what things look like, but it doesn't really kind of produce that kind of immersive experience of understanding, uh, uh, you know, what it was like. Um, um, so it, it, it just doesn't quite get, it doesn't quite do 
what people want it to do. And I, and I think too much weight is sometimes placed on smell in these kind of heritage product, uh, um, uh, projects. That's interesting. I Because I, I haven't experienced something like that myself, but I've all, when I've seen it, I thought this sounds amazing and I, I would feel as if it would help me to understand more and be more immersed, which is like completely contradicting what you say. And I'm guessing you've actually experienced it firsthand like been somewhere and yeah I, I i have i mean i've been to all three of those different sites um and you know they're not really successful in either in, really in kind of recreating the material sensoria either you know they're very impressionistic uh, you know the technology just simply isn't there for capturing and reproducing um uh, aromatic atmospheres um we just don't have that technology so it ends up being like a kind of basically about as good as a kind of scratch and sniff card uh, and they always smell more of cardboard than the actual kind of thing that you want them to smell of um so it's, they're very impressionistic um i guess they're kind of useful for you know just giving something more corporeal more visceral to engage with but in terms of kind of understanding particular historical moments or cultures I, you know it's very superficial i think why do you think that though just because it's not authentic say i went you know, it was supposed to be some medieval street scene and it and it smelled rancid and awful. I think that, for me, I, I think it would make me feel more immersed in it. Well, if, if, if they were rancid and awful smells that you recognise and you recognise them as rancid and awful and the same rancid and awful existed in medieval times, you know, as, as it does today, and I guess, you know, rotting flesh and, and, um, and manure haven't changed, then, yeah, mm. sure, you know, like those aspects of it would work. I, I wonder how willing the heritage sites would be to kind of put those particular <laughs> yeah, smells uh, <laughs> into, the, into their displays. But, yeah, no, um, yeah, I guess if it's within your sensory milieu if you know if 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 there's an aroma in there that exists also within another culture or within another kind of historical moment then you can um you know you can make sense of it through your own body yeah it it, it definitely makes sense to you but i think we have to be a bit careful about this because i guess i come at this from not from the kind of uh, angle of history but from the angle of trying to understand social order in cities and of course you know in a multicultural city like london lots of people eat lots and lots of different things we have you know uh, uh, it's a city of omnivores now just because i eat you know the perfect pad thai on a thursday doesn't mean that um you know, and I'll ascribe to it, you know, my own meaning and my own kind of, you know, it's derived from my own biography. It doesn't mean that, you know, I really understand, you know, how a pad thai sits within kind of Thai culture or, you know, what it means. Uh, do, do you see what I'm getting yeah, at? Like there, yeah. there's a kind of, there's, there's a very problematic form, very shallow form of boutique cosmopolitanism or of multiculturalism that says, well, you know, I eat lots of things, therefore I'm very worldly and tolerant. And, no not necessarily because that doesn't actually involve any kind of level of understanding um you know any engagement beyond the kind of surface appearance of, of any kind of given culture or historical moment i'm careful around this because there's also you know uh, other colleagues who work with the senses in anthropology and sociology sometimes might make very big claims for them saying if you can understand how and you know if, if 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 you walk alongside another you can understand how they're emplaced in the world and how they make sense of it 
I don't think that's true. It's not true for us as same way as it wasn't true for kind of anthropologists in the 19th and 18th century trying to make sense of, you know, otherworldly cultures. Um, we have our own sensibilities and we need to kind of be very conscious of that. No, you're completely right. I mean, when we never truly appreciate another person's experience in the world because it's always going to be tainted with our own personal experiences to some degree. Um, so what do you think of these projects that are trying to preserve smells? Do you think that's like a wrong way to go? I, I think there are some really good reasons to preserve smells. Um, so some of the more interesting kind of work I've seen done with the senses, particularly in kind of museum and gallery settings, um, has been uh, engagement of elderly audiences, of, of uh, engagements with, with older people. Um, I was part of a project uh, called um, Sensory Cities, and we went around uh, Barcelona and Cologne and, and, and worked with people in London in museums and in planning departments in each and every city. And I remember that the museum in Cologne did some amazing work, not with Cologne, although that would have been fitting, <laughs> but um, uh, with, just with kind of various kind of smells and, and, and textures and sounds even from older people's pasts and this was really crucial particularly if you know people suffered from uh, dementia and alzheimer's it was a really really great way of engaging them uh, with the exhibits and you know and and with stuff that was going on around them right there and then it kind of opened them up so i think that's that's a really interesting and uh, and worthwhile uh, use of these things um i just think the technology uh, yeah, of course, you know, let's preserve as much as we can, you know, and things are valuable. And we, uh, you know, I'm a, all of my work is always historical. We need to understand where we've come from in order to understand where we're going. Um, I just, I, I, I guess too much weight is placed on smell to kind of create that immersive experience. It's, it's, it's not to say that it's a kind of futile activity. Um, um, you know, we need to kind of curate uh, an archive, you know, that kind of attends to the full range of sensory experiences. Um, but we, I think we should be careful about just how much uh, we want smell to do for us. Yeah. It's interesting hearing your perspective because obviously you're in that area and you know all about it. Whereas for me, I feel like smell uh, is kind of neglected. I don't see it coming up that much. But obviously, it, it clearly is more than I think. And... Oh, well, I am in this field. And, you know, if I go to a museum, I mean, those particular institutions were selected because they're doing stuff with the senses. So <laughs> there are many, many others that aren't. Um, um, and, and, you know, and maybe they could be doing more, you know, with touch as well. You know, touch is a hugely underexplored thing within the realms of the gallery and the museum. Um, there's, there's always more that could be done. I just think we need to think very carefully about what smell is, how smell works in relationship to society and historical processes. And if we start to unpack that a little bit more, then maybe we can do smell within those, uh, more with smell in those heritage contexts. I actually think there can be value in, in a heritage context for more recreational purposes, obviously not research. Um, and I mean, obviously I think people need to take that on board what you said you know that this is your experience it's not a experience of a person from the past it's the past recreated but I think in terms of you know just enjoyment for people and perhaps they might get an appreciation um, of the ease with modern life that that type that type of thing um, 
but have you been to see like uh, the Book of Kells in Ireland and you can go to the old library? And oh, it, no, no, I haven't. You no. go in, that smell, it hits you like that musty book. Like that's obviously genuine. It actually does smell like that, but there's something just gives it another level. I, well, yeah. for me, I feel like it just gives the whole experience another level. You're just compared to if you mm. went in and it just smelled clean or of or new, it just feels a lot more atmospheric. And I feel like a lot of people, well, people I know who have been there, that's what they comment on as well, the yeah. sort of whole experience of it. You feel like you've gone back in time. Just, I suppose maybe that links to what you're saying, though. We assume old-time smell of musty books, but how do we know that? We just <laughs> well, kind of... Well, 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 so that particular example is a really interesting example. No, musty books would have smelled of musty books the same now as they smell then. And that particular aroma literally indexes the the smell of musty books as they would have been there in the past you know it hasn't changed like the smell the 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 sound of horse hooves clopping on cobblestones hasn't changed you know that that sounds the same in the past as it would now you know those things are almost kind of you know sensory uh, relics from the past i guess i'm my skepticism slightly around some of the kind of more impressionistic efforts to kind of recreate the atmospheres of the past which kind of really end up being kind of you know uh, blotchy Monet paintings uh, um, of, of aromatic atmospheres. Yeah. You know, really impressionistic, really impressionistic. Ain't yeah. It? Do you, you, you might not know the answer to this question, so don't worry if you do, but I was going to ask, do you know how they actually go about attempting to preserve these smells? I mean, it must be a hell of a lot of science involved in that. Well, um, in the first instance, I don't think there really was. Um, uh, for a long time, um, it's been based on kind of, you know, reading books and then just trying to kind of create preservable compounds that you could release through an aerosol um, in a particular context. I think things are changing. So, you know, that technology of trying to create a kind of impressionistic smell is the same technology as it has been for three, four hundred years. You can go to the perfume museums in uh, Paris and see the smell organs that they use to kind of combine different aromas to create, you know, Im- impressionistic smells. But w- there is technology now for doing uh, literally, you know, a chemical breakdown of air in a given place and to kind of uh, try and identify which compounds are there. And I guess you could do that, you know, for historical relics as well, or you know, maybe the you know, the smells that have become embedded in floorboards or something. I don't know. There are, the point is, is there are ways of breaking down, you know, identifying the, the, the chemical composition. And then there's a wonderful artist. I, I don't know if you've come across a Sissel Toolhouse. No, I haven't. She does a lot of work with smells and she, she works very closely with large uh, chemical uh, uh, manufacturers as well. So she collects smells in kind of velvet-lined tubs because velvet uh, kind of collects the smell. But she also started doing this uh, chromographic analysis of air and then works with um, uh, these chemical companies to reproduce you know, molecule by molecule, uh, specific compounds. Um, and then they're captured in kind of nano bubbles, which are then uh, implanted into paints so that when you touch the paint, the bubbles burst. And this it's it's as close as we're getting to kind of, I guess, aromatic photography. It costs yeah. an absolute fortune. This is not I, accessible. I was ask, actually. Yeah. Because the smell must wear away too when people have rubbed it a certain amount of times. 
Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, the, 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 there's a famous uh, thing that she does. I think it was called The Smell of American Fear. I'll, I'll have to double check it. But um, where she collected, the, she exposed 10 different American men to kind of really horrific images and took um, sweat swabs from their armpits and then reproduced them, you know, molecule by molecule in this paint. And it was, it was an exhibition at MoMA. But she, um, one of the, I think, man number eight or man number nine was so popular uh, that they they turned it into a, they bottled it and they were selling it in the gift shop. <laughs> wow! Uh, so, oh so it, it became reproducible. Uh, another thing that she's doing at the moment is creating kind of entirely unique aromatic compounds. You can just order them and you you get your own one in a little vial, um, and it's entirely unique to you, and nobody else will have the same. She's really kind of playing with the technology and and and, and what's possible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, there are people that do. It, it costs a lot of money. Um, I think the chromatographic analysis, the, the, the just the tool for capturing the 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 air before it's kind of broken down, was like um, fifteen thousand. English pounds uh, last time I looked and not something that um, a sociology department was ever going to buy from me. <laughs> yeah, you can dream. Yeah. I suppose you kind of touched on this question already, but are there any scents you fear that are on the decline and we may no longer smell anymore? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the transformation of the demography of inner cities in particular um you know, let's be honest, you know, the gentrification of inner cities, the replacement of the kind of diverse migrant groups with a slightly more kind of homogenized transnational uh, um, um, culture is is really worrying. And of course, there are problems to the kind of marketing of ethnicity through things like Chinatown and through Bangalatown and the Curry Mile and stuff. But these were sources of income uh, for those communities and also kind of, you know, a kind of a marker of identity um, on space. And it concerns me greatly that those kind of spaces are being lost, not just because of the loss of income through, you know, the conversion of a curry shop into a trendy bistro, but, you know, also of, of, of in terms of the shifting kind of attachment to place mm. uh, and, and, and people's ability to kind of feel at home or to belong in the city. So those um, are definitely um, disappearing. Maybe we'll start to see new smells emerging, though. I mean, you know, one of the things that's really notable post-COVID has been the um, the decline in motor traffic. And certainly some parts of London, you could never smell anything on the street because of the heavy particulate matter from the roads yeah. that were running through it. Just clogged, you know, clouded out all the other smells. So it might be, you know, as we start to go kind of all e-scootery that, you know, new, the, 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 the kind of aromatic tapestry becomes a little bit clearer. But um yeah, there, there is this kind of relative process of homogenization, I think, that's going on um, that's concerning. Do you think you're going to do any research into this, into post-COVID smells? Are you going to look into that or is it kind of just something you're sort of noticing in your own time? It's something that I'm noticing in my own time. Um as a sociologist, there is lots of kind of things post-COVID that are really, really fascinating. One of the things I've become really interested in is less to do with um, aroma, although it's still a really big part of, of, of what I'm interested in, and to do with touch and the kind of new etiquette around touch and tactility and our kind of shifting re uh, tactile relationship to the city. Um, so that's become you know, particularly um, um that's the kind of next avenue of 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 research for me actually as 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 fascinating and as important as smell is to me um um 
it's only ever been a way of understanding social order and processes you know, and, and social and economic processes. And smell's not really the thing that kind of that I'm fixed to. What I'm fixed to is trying to understand social processes and processes of social order. And I think touch is particularly important at this moment. Oh, definitely. I mean, all of our normal so- social cues have had to change and we've had to adapt. You can't shake hands. You can't hug people. Oh, or- I know. Yeah. Yeah. you know all, all sorts of things that you things you wouldn't normally think about that you would just happily do naturally you you, you have to start to think about how to behave so much more so yeah um yeah i mean touches <laughs> touches is a massive uh well all, all of us to be honest all of our senses really aren't they they're all crucial yeah 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 they are when you break them down one by one you start to realize how important they are i think sight is obviously the main one we think about a hell of a lot and hearing and mm. perhaps touch and smell are the least the ones we yeah, think about and, least. and not least because we haven't had the technologies for recording and representing them you know we have technologies for, That's re- true, for recording yeah, and representing yeah. the visual world and the sonic world and i guess you know right from aristotle those two senses were always placed higher in the sensory hierarchy than than touch and smell but i think we're starting to realize just kind of how crucial um, um uh, the other senses are within the turn towards thinking about the senses has been going on within sociology and anthropology for 10, 20 years now. So within these fields, we're starting to get a better sense of just how important they are. It's still relatively hard to kind of make that argument to say to town planners uh, <laughs> um, or, or, or people working in museum contexts or galleries. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think with museums, though, they, in terms of touch, I feel like they are getting there with that kind of thing for for children certainly there's a lot more feel what this feels like move these bricks around press these buttons they're not so dry anymore and you just read text (laughs) you know yeah i want that for adults but yes i totally agree yeah 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 Yeah. i suppose that's the next step isn't it gotta gotta get it gotta get it in place for adults yeah here's Um, here's me accusing other people of being arrested in their childhood yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah no it it is though it makes that's the bottom line i mean if you look at humans our senses are everything like we we like to touch, we like to feel and smell and hear and be immersed, don't we? So Yeah, and that's that's how we get information. Exactly. So yeah, like being able to explore things that way, I think we we take we'd take it in a lot better, wouldn't we? We do. Um, mm. This must be really interesting for you to research all this stuff. Really fascinating. It has been. It, so one of the things that I find is yes, it is all really, really interesting. One of the things I find is because it is under researched and because there hasn't been enough done on this up to this point, that the main thing, and it's been lovely talking to you, but the main thing I find myself talking about when I talk to other sociologists or social researchers, or it's just it becomes a question of methods. Oh, that's interesting. How do you go about researching that? And what I really want to talk about is what we find out in terms of social order and social process and, you know, how various forms are reproduced. But because of the relative novelty of the subject, I do often find myself talking about the kind of nuts and bolts of it rather than actually what you find out through thinking about the senses. So yeah, yeah it, it that's, is. That's it's, a it's shame. A, it is a shame. I, mean, I think it's a terrible shame. You know, it's a really interesting field, and quite often you only get twenty minutes to talk, and you talk about what it means to interview somebody about smell. Um, yeah. So that's that's my bugbear. Yeah, I like I say, I I did sociology at A level, so I, honestly, I've barely dipped my toe really. But it was very much all the sort of methods you'd use to study people, and um, so that's why. I, 
when you said what you were doing, I was quite surprised. But it makes sense for sociology. It really does. Looking at the senses and perhaps talking about them more rather than just the sort of research method. You'd hope people would, well, you'd hope others would want to talk about it more. I mean, are you like the only one really doing stuff in this mainly? Um, uh, there are more within anthropology. Um, um, okay, you know, there, yeah. There's a whole um, uh, kind of sensory research um, uh, body within anthropology. There are a handful of sociologists in mainly in Canada um, and Singapore and um, and a few in the UK who um, are looking at this as well. Um, but no, we're a pretty small group. Um, you know, we're all on the same newsletter. We know who each other are. Um, there was one um, colleague um, who was looking explicitly at smell in the city and was doing the most amazing research, um, but she, um, uh, Victoria Henshaw, um, and, and I recommend anyone check her book out on smell in the city, but she, uh, she sadly um, um, died just before the, uh, the book was published. She died really young, but was, was doing some of the most interesting work actually using kind of more formal sociological methods and collecting kind of statistical data as well um, around smell in the city. So th- there's a small handful of us. But yeah, we, we keep having to argue for what we're doing rather than talking about what it is that we discover. You wouldn't think that it would be that way around, but oh, I suppose hopefully the more you do it, the more people will take interest and realise how important it is. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I sounded really kind of uh, uh, grumbly and pessimistic. No, no you, no, you really don't. You don't. I, I mean, it's it's understandable. It, it, it's good stuff you're doing. You don't sound like you're moaning, so don't worry. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll finish up with this question. Do you have a favourite smell of a certain landscape? You know, in the city, the countryside, a building. Have you got something that really sort of you, well, other than the cigarettes, I found that out now. You love the smell of stealth yeah. bags. Um, I guess I wouldn't if I had to be around it all the time. But, yeah, just, just to catch a whiff now and again. Um, yeah, know, yeah. I guess, you know, I love the smell of, of the cooking smells that come out of my block of flats, at, you know, kind of between 3 and uh, 6 o'clock every evening as everyone starts to prep the big meals. It's always a kind of real in- index mm. of the... Um, the uh, the kind of cultural richness of uh, East London where I live that's an amazing smell. Um, um, there's a lot of garlic. There's a lot of spices. I, I love kind of smelling. You know, sometimes you get oh somebody's cooking roast beef over there, or somebody's kind of deep frying some fish there. I, I love the smell of kind of culinary activity coming out of residential blocks. Mm. Um, but my more generally. I love the kind of smell of mulching autumn leaves on, you know, that kind of first chilly day of spring, ideally yeah. accompanied by the kind of scratch on the back of the neck from the first sweater that you've put on. That's a nice combination. Yeah, um, I love the smell of the City of London in the morning. So if you go through the financial quarter of the City of London in the morning, um, it smells like hotel foyers. It smells like kind of new, uh, like freshly applied shampoo and a bit of cologne and bacon and sausage sandwiches. And um, but 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 it's on mass. You know, it's like an entire kind of square mile of the city smells like that, or at least it did. You know, before COVID. And 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 I guess that's an attachment to the kind of luxury of hotel life. And you know, there's there's, there's it's it's quite an evocative smell. Mm. Um, that's, that's all I can really come up with at the moment. Yeah, yeah no, they're they're good ones. It, do you know what? When you were talking about the uh, hotel office smell, that just flashed me back because my mum used to work uh, in an office, and 
the smell of the like entrance foyer oh my god I love that smell and I've never smelled it again I cannot find this smell anywhere and I think it was funny enough after me sort of slagging off the smell of cigarettes it was kind of a cigarette smell with like carpet and um kind of perfume I don't know but I honestly I absolutely love that smell and if I ever went to her office I'd just be like really sniffing it up because I oh it smells so good and I just wish I could smell that smell again and I never will and I and I'll never really know exactly what it was you know you just kind of got to piece together what you think that scent was I loved it yeah, so that's a really interesting yeah, one. Yeah, no, it was a really good smell. And I, I know what you mean about the autumn kind of smell. I actually, I really love the scent of Christmas as well. I love that mm-hmm. cold air smell. And, you know, you've got sort of maybe the mulled wine and the Christmas tree smell in the air. And it, there's something about a winter smells, actually, the sort of, it's a very smoky sort of scent in the air. And um, like you say, leaves and it's lovely. I think the smell of Christmas is the closest thing that, you know, kind of Northern Europeans have to, you know, um, a particular kind of uh, set of smells attached to a festival or to a, uh, uh, yeah, to, 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 to a kind of ritual festival. They kind of smell of cinnamon and nutmeg and wood burning. And, yeah, the smell of Christmas is very powerful. And, you know, marketing companies know that. <laughs> really yeah. well as well oh for sure yeah. don't they? i mean that is funny actually because a lot of the candles you can buy these days they're really random specific scents aren't they like yes. fresh laundry or um yeah. Yeah. you know like you said like some sort of christmas tree smell baby um, towel so they're really yeah. good i saw a baby yeah, yeah i know they're really they're really getting in on that really getting there's in a kfc it. candle is there yeah 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 <laughs> oh my god yeah Wow. Do you like that smell? Because I know you did a lot of research on chicken shops. Um, I do like that smell, but that is all I'm going to say about it right now. <laughs> yeah, I might have to get my brother that for Christmas the- if it's still around because he loves KFC. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I, I, I do love that smell. I mean, it's a very, very contentious smell within the landscape of London. Um, and you know, I could talk. You could talk about the class divisions within London uh, through talking about people's orientations to the smell of uh, fried chicken. Um, it's a very contentious issue. But yeah, I mean, personally, um, um, I love it. Um, I, I probably eat too much fried chicken. Do you like the smell of McDonald's when it's in the paper bag and you've left it in the car? And yes, I love yes, that smell yes, as well. Yes, <laughs> it but, but you know, good. again, that's such a carefully, you know, that is it's uniform uh, regardless of which country you're in. You know, this is there's a reason that the process of mass industrialization was called McDonaldization, and you know, this idea that you can reproduce the same atmosphere whether it's in yeah, um, uh, Karachi, or whether it's in Croydon, um, you know, is really critical. And McDonald's go to great efforts to hook you into that at a very young age. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, through birthday birthday parties and happy meals, and um, um, yeah, that's a very powerful one. And it's why we end up still kind of craving boxes of twenty nuggets when um, our doctor says it's you know something that we shouldn't mm. be doing. So there's some interesting research done in the 80s around middle-class mothers and their anxieties around smells and smells of uh, fish and chips they were really worried about because they're worried about their kids smelling of deep-fried foods and, you know, being associated with the working classes. Whereas, you know, in a contemporary context, fish and chips is so expensive within the UK 
uh, that <laughs> it's really kind of lost uh, that that attachment uh, with a kind of vernacular working class culture that it used to have. Um, so I, I wonder what it will signify for future generations. It is, it's, it's an interesting one, fish and chips. Yeah, there's something about vinegar which has a very kind of power. So you know, the smell, literally the smell of vinegar makes you salivate, right? Like yes, if, you, yes. if you catch a whiff of vinegar, you can feel the twinges in your saliva glands. It's a very because as your mouth prepares for the for the acid, um, yeah. so that's a particularly powerful smell, I think. The vinegar is the smell I love because um, here in Australia, like they don't. They don't have that at their chip shops. They don't have salt and vinegar. Sip truly, yeah, I couldn't believe it either. <laughs> Unless it's just where I'm at and the ones I've been to. But I was like, this isn't fish and chips. I'm sorry, you don't get that lovely, like you said, that vinegary smell as you walk in, your mouth's watering. It's just an, the smell of, honestly, it doesn't have much of a scent, I must say, just the kind of, I suppose, mm, the oil. Interesting, yeah. I mean, I suppose it's fish and chips is a very, like, British thing, isn't it? Yes. Well, um, oh, God. is it not? Yeah, it it became a very British thing. Uh, no, it's it's a yeah. fusion food. Um, the uh, the fried potatoes were what were being cooked uh, by uh, Protestant weavers uh, when they migrated, you know, from the kind of sixteenth, seventeenth century onwards. And the deep fried battered fish was being produced by uh, Portuguese Jews, really, um, uh, uh, with a kind of leftover stock that couldn't be shifted at the markets. And somewhere in the nineteenth century, the the French pommes frites and the um, Portuguese Jewish um, pescado frito. Um, they came together. Uh, there's all sorts of stories about how they came together. The, the, the chips were being used to cool down the fat that the fish was fried in. Or uh, Anyway, they came together and this uh, immigrant fusion food uh, became kind of relabeled as quintessential working class British food really early in the 20th century. It's, again, it's a really interesting story. Um, um, in terms- That's not very well known at all, is it? You just think, oh, yeah, fish and chips are you know from here yeah so if we start to like take apart kind of you know flavors and smells and how we become attached to them and where they come from we also start to get a slightly kind of more complicated understanding of culture as well Mm. as culture not being fixed to a specific place or bounded by a specific geography but actually emerging out of the movement of things around the world and you know the same processes that help cities build um, so, you know, through understanding you know, how these kind of tastes and flavors of, flavors have been built up, we also get a kind of window into the economic and historical processes, you know, out of which kind of society emerges more generally. Yeah. And fish and chips being a great example of that, I think. Yeah, massively. Well, thanks for chatting with me today. It's been great. And, you know, if you want to let people know where they can find you or read read your stuff if you like yeah sure um well um i am uh, emailable uh, at uh, i teach at a uh, goldsmiths uh, as part of the university of london um my book uh, food and multiculture uh, a sensory ethnography of east london is uh, published by bloomsbury and is available from I'd say all good retailers, but I'm not sure that there are any good retailers left at all. It's, it's, it's available <laughs> yeah. from, the, from, from the normal evil retailer. Um, and, um, you know, I've written little bits here and there in papers and magazines. So if you, if you want to hear any more, uh, just uh, give it to Google or get in touch. So there we have it. If you enjoyed today's episode, do consider going over to Apple Podcasts to leave the show a rating and review. Really helps me out. For anything else Sense of Place podcast related, head over to senseofplacepod.com 
Here you can find a link to become a patron um, where you'll get episode extras, trailers and preview on upcoming episodes before anybody else, all for as little as a dollar, which is 75p. I don't have tiers on my Patreon page, so you can pay what you feel you can afford and you will all get the same benefits. If that's not your thing, I also do have a Ko-fi page where you can give a one-off donation. Ideally, I'd like to be able to cover the costs of maintaining this podcast, so the hosting site and the website and obviously books and resources that I buy for some of the interviews. However, this isn't essential if you don't feel you can afford to do this. I'm just happy to put these conversations out there for your listening enjoyment. So anyway, till next time, I will speak to you again soon.